Good evening, everyone, and welcome to McKinsey's Digital Dinner Podcast, hashtag digital dinner. This is our series that brings together different voices in Silicon Valley to explore interesting issues emerging in our digital world while enjoying some good food. And we are definitely doing that tonight at the Roca Aurora restaurant here in San Francisco. Tonight's topic, the new war for talent, which I'm excited to dive into here with a few voices from the Valley. First, an introduction. Uh, my name is Brian Gregg. I'm a partner in McKinsey's San Francisco office, where I lead our digital efforts in consumer. And I am thrilled to be joined by four wonderful voices in the Valley. And maybe I'll just start with my left, and I'll ask you your name, your company, and maybe your favorite app. Sure. Uh, I'm Tim Anderson. I'm the head of product for Glassdoor. I think my favorite app is probably Zillow. Check it every day to realize that I can't afford to live in San Francisco. My name is Karen Prasad, I'm VP of Engineering at LinkedIn. And uh, I don't know if it's my favorite app, but it's one I discovered today. Uh, it's called Lux Valet. Uh, so I'm staying up in the city, and it, uh, you pretty much use it, and they come pick up your car and valet it, no matter where you are, and then they drop off your car wherever you are. Um, 10 bucks for the whole day, anywhere you are in the city. $10? It's amazing. Excellent. Uh, Diane Ezra, I'm an associate principal out of San Francisco and a leader in our digital practice. Uh, I think the app that I talk about is an app called August, which is basically a remote door lock for your home. So just in the spirit of being able to do things in your home while not there. So for example, if you're ever doing Airbnb in a different city, and they'll let you in and out of their house through that. Hi, I'm Ann Roby. I'm the head of HR for StubHub here in San Francisco. And I'm going to shamelessly plug one of our apps, which is StubHub Music super cool. It reads your iTunes library and then it will serve up what bands are coming into town. Not only the actual bands, but also bands that might be like ones that you like. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining for dinner. Um, I want to dive right into a question that I think is, uh, when you step back from it all, it's pretty fascinating. Because if you think about almost for like the last hundred years, you could argue that the talent industry has been driven by gut instincts, right? And it seems like we have now just hit the precipice uh, of a, a, a pretty giant, gigantic shift where data analytics and how we think about evaluating and managing talent is about to change, or maybe is changed, changing right in front of us. And I'm wondering to get your views on, as you think about how data and technology starts to essentially make, change, this, change the landscape of the talent management world, uh, what do you foresee the big shifts happening? And maybe Anne will start with you since sure. you live this every day. Yeah, no, I, I, if you think about where we've been from an HR perspective, sort of in the dark ages, right? For we started as the personnel department and then, you know, finally we sort of became the HR and now people come in really cool titles like chief people office, officer and things like that. And I think data has uh, helped the rest of the business leapfrog from a strategic standpoint. And the next kind of frontier, or the frontier that's already here, frankly, is in regards to, to human resources. So I look at big data as what can help me sort of predict who will be a successful employee at StubHub. I look at data in terms of performance management and how we are thinking about our talents and who do we think can be successful. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit. I, I don't think it's 100% over on the talent and predictive analytics side. Oh, definitely. I think it's a balance of art and science. And, and you know, to some extent, I actually think it's probably more art than science. Every time we've looked at all of the data and we've tried to do predictions, and we have a ton of data that we do, 
try to predict whether a person is going to be successful or not, both at LinkedIn or at other companies. Uh, what we've generally found is that there is a sense of passion that is, we've at least so far found hard to measure. Well, but there's, there's some interesting things though, right? So if I can better predict where my attrition is going to happen, and so we've been looking at some really interesting things, like when do people attrit, and under what circumstances, and can we then predict what's going to happen 6, 12, 18, 24 months out, given historical trends, that really helps us. So we can hire ahead, uh, or we can, if we know that we need a certain skill set in the future, you know, I can wrap my arms around those employees and help them to like really want to stay here. We, we just implemented a um, sales tool that does just that. It's called Gainsight, uh, and it's supposed to predict turn of your accounts, right? And and it scores a bunch of signals. It's like, oh, this client hasn't logged into their employer center in two months, or this client just changed their job title on LinkedIn, and they're not your champion anymore. Like, and so you can score all those signals. So I can totally see how that would be applied to attrition. So, uh, but my question, Diane, maybe you can weigh in here leading all the analytics work you do. Is there a world, and I agree it may not be today, but is there, isn't there a world where this should be 100% analytically driven? And look, it may never be 100% analytically driven, but I think it's going to be much more heavily analytically driven. So even think about a place like Google, right, which has their googly score, which is this qualitative art that they care about, but they're still highly factoring in a number of different dimensions and have really changed their process over time. So for example, they used to be very prestige based, right? Cared very much about where you went to school, what your test your scores SAT were. SAT score, yeah. SAT scores, yeah. and as they've done predictive analytics with those metrics, shocker, that's not what correlates with success. So they've actually changed some of those practices in response. So it's not that it necessarily predicts success or failure, but they've found things that don't correlate, and therefore let's not spend time using those as screening criteria. I think that's the part we've really struggled with, is we can get data in volume sort of at, at, at a demographic level or at a trend level and tell you like millennials want to do this or generally SAT scores don't have a real impact on success. But I can't tell you if a specific person has that has that value or not. You, but Karen, you brought up millennials, so I want to go there for a second because this is a question we at McKinsey get all the time and I'm sure it's We've in your We've done so much research on this, yeah. And now what's happened from that, from, a, from a, one generation, two generations, we've gone from what is a 20-year product, i.e. go get a job once every 20 years, to a product that now is once, you tell me what actually, the average is, Kieran. Actually, this is really interesting. If you go area by area, yeah. uh, it's still 20 years. Oh, well, there you go. So you will be surprised. I think we, we are very really? delusional in our sort of Silicon Valley. Everybody changes jobs every four years. Four years. <laughs> Maybe even faster. But like, if, if you kind of look at where the way our compensation systems are set up, they're set up in a model to optimize you to a four-year turnaround cycle. Right. But if you look at the way that like most of middle America, they don't change that often. They, they stay 10, 15 years. And most people are actually risk-averse. In fact, you've, you've concentrated a whole bunch of people who are risk-friendly into a, into a yeah. specific area, and then you're using them as an extrapolation of how the rest of the world works, and it doesn't. I find, at least at StubHub, my, my millennial population is way more interested in how we're connected to community. And they are 
they totally it, agree on this. Do yes. you? Yes. Like, yes. It this is. is I, I get the question all the time, and these are the people that are like so concerned about what we're doing and how we're connecting, and are we connected locally? What are we doing globally? Socially what, responsible. Yes. Politically. What is our What savvy. is our stance on what is happening in the world? What is our stance and what is happening? And so it is amazing. It's really interesting to me. We just opened a team in Kenya doing content operations. In Kenya? In Kenya, doing content operations, where they're moderating content and doing special projects on our data. And uh, the pictures were sent out to the entire company, and the feedback on that was amazing. Because it was like, I'm so glad that we're doing this and adding value in another part of the world to see Kenyans wearing glass door t-shirts and glass door sunglasses and sitting at workstations and feeling proud about where they were and hearing those stories was like amazing feedback. You know, everyone's asking these questions like, do I need to start a hub in the Silicon Valley? Every company under the sun is trying to do, is that what I need to do to get the top of the top talent? And if not, how do I create that wherever I am? You can create that if you have the culture Right. If you have the culture, you can do that in any city. And I'd actually stay away from Silicon Valley. Where would you go? Because it's too competitive here. It is too competitive. We have had an impossible time hiring great talent in any function, whether it be engineering, user experience, (laughs) data science, whatever. It is so competitive here. Um, We have had more luck relocating people. And we've been talking about like what other satellite offices should we open. So I actually uh, disagree. Really? I, yeah. I I think all the things that you're talking about about a great culture and knowing that the, that the perks aren't the thing that's important. Um, that how we work are things that are actually unique to the valley today. And until I think until a, a portion of the uh, of mainstream America and the large companies actually come and create a hub and understand the difference, they can't replicate it in other places. People always ask me, whatever product you're in, I sell running shoes. People buy two running shoes a year. I need them to engage with me. I said, go ask LinkedIn. They took a product that was once every three years and made it a daily, a Well, that's because I think that LinkedIn has done such a a brilliant job of not just being the job search site, right? I go to LinkedIn because I find super interesting. Fred Kaufman, yeah. I find super interesting articles. Content community, yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, no, like no, I, you're right. it's you're where right, I right. go to read a lot, especially around HR. Like, I but at the center of it is like employment. I mean, you should. What is your mission? Our mission is actually our vision is actually connect connect to opportunity. It's to, it's to it's to create an environment to connect you to opportunity. And we typically, I think, when people hear that, they're like, oh, that's a job. Um, and, and it's not. It's, it's potentially a, a deal if it's a business deal. It's potentially information for you to be able to be more successful at your job. Another one that we've, we've if, you, if you just look, like the gig, what we call the gig economy. So a lot of people are starting to effectively do these short-term, yes. quick jobs, yes. right? Like my Uber driver that I took to come here. This, I mean, this is a whole other interesting area, Brian, is that's really, I worry Worry. I don't know if worry is the right word, but like, is that the future of talent in a lot of ways? Is is how transient people are going to be? That they are not actually uh, wanting to be employees, but they're wanting to have such a wide variety of experiences. I'm going to be a contract hire. I'd like to live in San Francisco for six months, but then I want to go live in Singapore, and maybe London sounds great next after that. And and so there's a more transient population that has like they may go deep, so they never get broad. 
but they may go deep in their particular skill and then they they're kind of hired hands yeah and i think the a really effective the marketplace look. on a project basis yeah. is is i think definitely the future that's probably you know, within a 10-year window, I think you'll you'll start to see more and more and more people who have specific skill sets be able to just come forward and say, I know how to do this, somebody needs to hire me, I have recommendations from these other three people I've done jobs for. And here's the question is, if you're sitting in the middle of the country, if you're not Shanghai, Moscow, yeah. Rio, San Francisco, or New York, and let's say you're right, in seven, eight, 10 years, the bulk of the highest quality talent do want these 18-month snip appetizers, and what do you do with that? How do you compete? I think at the end of the day, where our competitive advantage is going to be as employers over contract hirers is in our ability to, to give the, um, I talked a moment ago about the, the depth, but, but also giving the breadth. I actually think it's, it's interesting. I think what this actually encourages is the leadership to start having better relationships with other companies, so that when you have an employee after two years has decided, hey, I want to move on. They are coming to you because they're like, oh, he is the most well-connected in the area to find me my next job, even if it's not at this company. It's, it's, it's starting to create a, an opportunity distribution. This is actually the story that we tell when we hire people. It's like, look, you, you join us. Our job is to find you your next job. And we're actually very honest about this. When they are ready to find their next role, we will go, I will personally go out and reach out to my network and find that person his next role. But so, so um, one question we haven't really, we've, we've talked all about as if we had to go get this talent ourselves. But what about the build versus buy question? It's tricky. And it's tricky from a couple perspectives. So um, we've talked a lot about cultural fit. Right? We've talked a lot about how important it is that we, you find talent that is interested in the work that you do and what your ultimate mission is. So aqua hires are really interesting when you have a huge need or you are shifting in your market in some way or you have a skill set mismatch or something that you don't even, you, you, that doesn't exist. That is a very fast way to, to pick up talent super quickly. The problem and volume is, too, right? Exactly. Yeah. The, the problem is, is exactly sort of what I said a little bit earlier that when we were growing crazy, crazy fast a couple of years ago and I allowed sort of, I opened the aperture a little bit and I, I let people sort of hire in a more crazy way than I normally would, I'm paying for it now. And I think that's the same thing with aqua hires. You have to be really careful from a, from a cultural fit perspective. What's in that bag? Oh, I want some I'll have some brows. Brows. What's in that paper bag over there? Oh, this that's is the a fish. fish. All right. So here's, here's a fun question, and it'd be good to get all your take on this. Um, Hal Varian, you know, Google's chief economist said uh, famously that, you know, the 90s in the last decade were basically, if you, if you just look at who was sort of the winning uh, gem of the talent market, it was more or less the computer scientist. Right? But as you look ahead to the next 10 years, his argument is that the statistician will become the new king, queen of talent. Uh, just because of the nature of digital, what's happening here in the Valley, et cetera. And I'm just interested in all of you, as you look at the market through your lens, do you agree with Hal? 
I definitely think HR people are like the darlings of that. The next goal we are in, in, we are in finite demand and finite resource and high demand. But I think there's actually you joke, but I think there's some reality to that. I mean, the, the reality is, is how do you how do you move from the HR professional who is really good at sort of you know, the traditional kind of recruiting, developing, retaining, and move them more into this data science role. Like, how do you how do you create an HR organization that is far more analytics, analytics driven in order to achieve the strategies of the business, right? So HR used to be a nice thing on the side, like let's make sure we hire and develop the right people. But at the end of the day, where are all of our dollars going? They're going into our people. So let's get away from the, like, it's the cute thing on the side Seriously. Oh, and by the way, equipment. it's a lot of dollars. It's a, a lot, lot of dollars. dollars. A lot of dollars. It's a lot of dollars. And and the so to have it be uh, analytically driven is important, right? Or at least Probably to understand <laughs> to understand the ROI of where am I spending my money to recruit talent? Right. And what does and it cost me when it, someone attrits? Exactly. Like, that's really, really important because it's a lot of money. And yet, it's so far behind. It really is. Absolutely, there's been underinvestment, right? So I, it, I was joking, but in other ways, we we have to change the definition of what the HR organization actually is. And there is always going to be the art to it. There will always be the heart and the art. But the science piece is woefully lacking in a lot of HR organizations. And to be able to drive more analytical research and understand ROI and understand what the cost of things yeah. are from a people perspective, that's where the HR organizations need to go. And if you take a look, so not the HR part, but the recruiting part, right? Recruitment is like a $19 billion global industry. It's huge. Uh, and if you were then to go and say, all right, Tell me how much you're spending on recruiting. Like, how much are you spending on your LinkedIn recruiting seats? Tell me how much you're spending on Monster Career Builder, Glassdoor, Indeed, whatever the job word is. And then say, so what's your cost per hire? <laughs> so if I take Glassdoor as an example, and we have a performance-based advertising product and job advertising, which you guys also have in LinkedIn. Um, so it's like, all right, so give us a budget. We're going to send you applicants, and then you'll be able to see cost per applicant and then track that to cost per hire, it's not anything different than AdWords. In fact, it's much simpler, right? I think what I've found is when I look at data scientists or when I look at engineers, when I look at product managers, I look at everybody, that the biggest trouble that I believe we have is that you can collect all the data and you can analyze it, but if you can't present it in a short, concise, consumable way for our leaders to be able to then take action, it's, it's effectively irrelevant. And, and the hardest thing I found is with data scientists is they can't actually visualize the data. They, they, they dump a gigantic spreadsheet on you and you're like, the hell does this mean? You, you need a like, translator. what happened? Where's my translator? <laughs> like, translation. Data Find rich. signal from the nine. Yeah. And <laughs> like, is there something I should do as a result of all this data? And I think trying to educate everybody on how to do that effectively, I think, is going to be really tough. So I, I feel like the things that designers do and maybe it's not user experience designers. I don't, I don't know what that term is, but and there's sort of almost these unicorns that can sort of take these really complicated data problems or engineering problems or marketing problems or sales problems 
and then translate it down into like, you know, you need to stop hiring from Chicago, it's not working. <laughs> like something that simple. So I don't actually believe data scientists will be hired in volume at all of these distributed companies. They'll be hired by software companies who build software that eliminate the need for data scientists in all of these. Like that's the definition of software. It automates away the need for people in those specific repetitions. So and the like, designer will be there for the presentation layer. Uh, exactly. To make sure so, that you understand that that one data point is something to pay attention to. A good designer um, makes a world of difference um, because of the complexity, right? Like it is about taking something so complex and trying to make it simple so that everyone can understand it and use it. And um, I feel like designers, uh, I have a very strong design bias. I'm not a designer by trade, but I have a very strong design bias because I feel like great user experience will always win. Um, but I feel like designers get shortchanged a little bit, especially when considered against engineers or statisticians because they don't have advanced degrees and they are a little bit less structured in their thinking. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I want to thank my panelists, Tim, Kieran, Diane, Anne, and thank our listeners for joining us. Before we end tonight, I just want to wrap with a quick uh, round robin around the table with a final question. If you were to project out 10 years, 2025, sitting back at this restaurant talking about the future, the next war for talent, where do we expect the next Silicon Valley to pop up? Tim, what do you think? I think it's going to be a lot more distributed. I just don't think that it's going to be in one place. So uh, what we know, I Second think, Valley. I think that there, that this energy that we've talked about, the that the skills that we've talked about, they can be recreated and they are in other places. I'm going to say what it's not. Okay. It's not the U.S. I agree. It is, I don't know where it is, but I listen with deep interest about what Glassdoor has done in Kenya. I have a great friend who has an organization that has um, tapped resources in Mexico. Um, clearly the BRIC countries are already the BRIC countries. Um, so I just, I, I don't think that we know, but I don't think it's in the US. I think it's in a developing country and I think it's a country that is smart and that invests in its people and allows for creativity. I'll take that as a step up. <laughs> Diane, you have a city for us? <laughs> no, that's interesting. <laughs> Going on the theme of non-US, I'm always impressed with these pockets of talent. And I think it really ties back to the question that you posed on, are we actually going to have an economy that pieces together parts of different people's time? And does that actually enable this international piece? So for example, I've worked with data scientists in Poland, or people in San Paolo people just all over the world on very niche things. And so I don't know that there's going to be one place altogether, but I think now we are enabled the ability to work anywhere much more seamlessly. Kieran, the next Silicon Valley. What's the answer? So I, have, I, have two, I have two very different answers. One, Shanghai, China, Shanghai. They've taken something like innovation, and they call it now micro-innovation. I'm like, what's micro-innovation? And they just mean like put 80 people on it and they're gonna try all 80 A-B tests that you wanna try simultaneously in all directions. So I, I think that's one. The, the second one actually I think is a person's living room. Um, is what, I'm sorry? Person's living room, a person's home. Um, 
I think you know knowledge workers are becoming more and more distributed. But I, look, I actually don't outside of management roles. You know, as an individual contributor, whether I'm a designer, whether I'm an engineer, product manager, I can actually be really successful. It, not being at the office. That is the extreme version of Tim's answer. Right? Distributed skill sets, no single vortex. Well, thank you, panel. This has been a treat for me. I appreciate you joining us uh, this evening. And for our listeners, please tweet us your ideas for our next digital dinner.